We couldn't have imagined what happened to us during that pandemic on so many levels. So we were coping with this global pandemic, the national borders closed. And then in the midst of all of that, I get this very personal phone call from my brother-in-law that my younger sister had taken her life in lockdown in Melbourne. So suddenly on these three levels, the pandemic and the tentacles of, of that terrible time uh, had yeah, really wrapped itself around me. Hello and welcome to Stories by the Wayside, a podcast by Wayside Chapel. My name is John Owen and I've been the pastor and CEO of Wayside Chapel since 2018, but I've spent my whole life creating a community with no us and them. This podcast is a tribute to love and belonging, loneliness and loss, and the rich kaleidoscope of chaos that comes when life is lived from the gutter up. Every episode, I invite friends from the wayside for honest, big-hearted conversations about the crisis of disconnection in these overwhelming times. My guest today lived in King's Cross in the 90s, during the time of the crime bosses, standover men, streetwalkers, the heroin crisis and the opening of the first medical injecting room in the Southern Hemisphere. Back then, King's Cross was a vibrant mix of people from all walks of life, artists, musicians, politicians and rough sleepers, It was a place of extremes where everyone was accepted and the community looked out for each other. Her time in the cross is embedded in her long history as an accomplished journalist, author and advocate for sustainable living. I'm really excited about this conversation which taps into the magic of unplanned moments, her obsession with whales, processing grief after a family tragedy and the power of nature to heal. Before we get stuck into it though, let me give you a little disclaimer. I was regularly brought to tears during this podcast. You may be too. All right. Tell us a bit about yourself. (laughs) Where do I start? Um, I had this amazing moment in a recent road trip. I just had some time off work. And when you plan a holiday, you put so much, well, I do. Mm. Where are we going to stay? What are we going to do? What are we going to eat? And I do tend to overplan a lot of things. And probably the most extraordinary thing that happened during this road trip was the thing that I did not expect and did not plan, Mm. which was also a very important lesson because sometimes we can plan so much about our lives and remove, yes, we remove the things that we think are going to be the disappointments when we do that. Mm. But what we also remove are the surprises when you overplan. I like that. And so this surprise that happened was we had a free morning. It was beautiful weather. We were in Port Stephens and I woke up and I looked out and we could see a bit of sea and I thought, hang on, it's whale season. I wonder if we could see some whales. So went to an app, found that there was a boat going out in an hour and I said to my husband, let's get on. And he goes, really? We're going whale watching? <laughs> I went, yeah, go on, let's, let's give it a try. Uh, and we got on the boat. It was the first day of whale watching season mm. and the skipper said, look, you don't expect to see anything. It's the first day. We haven't had any sightings, so, but it'll be a beautiful day for a bit of a sail. Mm. So be open about it. Anyway, as soon as we headed out to the heads, he said there was another boat ahead who had just radioed to him saying they saw a whale and they were, we were heading straight for it. And I'm there going, oh, my God, we might see a little fin or a little tail or something. Wasn't expecting anything. Mm. And as we got closer, the other boat moved away and we had to keep a 100-metre um, exclusion zone so that we didn't 
trouble the whale. And then we realised there were three in the pod. There was a really big mother and then there was a, a smaller um, whale and then this juvenile, about three or four years old, the skipper thought, and he said, we're going to switch off the engines, go into neutral. If the whales feel comfortable, they'll come to us. But if they don't, we can only just see them from this distance, which was still amazing, seeing the spouts, hearing the roar when they spouted. And then a pod of dolphins came in and started playing with the whales. And it was extraordinary. And I just went, wow, this is more than I could ever imagined. It was thrilling, exciting, just seeing them enjoying the ocean. And then they broke away and the dolphins started coming towards our whale watching boat. And then the juvenile whale started to follow them. And it came right up along our boat. And I just looked down. Oh, my gosh, it rolled onto its back and you could see its white underside. It was a a humpback whale. Mm. And you could see the barnacles on it and they were scraping against the hull of the boat as well so you could hear this noise. And it was just rolling and playing and rolling and just having such a good time. It was so thrilling. And then it rolled and I saw part of its eye come out of the water and look up and it was Wow. It was one of those moments I wanted to jump into the ocean with the whale and just swim with it and just go where it was going and thinking it's just so joyous. It's having such a good time. And it really blew us all away. And we came away, everyone on the boat, we had all these different tourists with us and even Mark who had been very, oh, well, we'll have a great cruise, he wasn't expecting to be so affected by that encounter with that whale and I don't think I've still got over it. It's mm. still sitting with me two or three weeks afterwards. Good. Now, let's go there. How do experiences like that, as you spoke about, where we overschedule our lives, we remove the ability for awe and wonder and delight and surprise to kind of catch our breath. How do experiences like the one you had position you in the universe? They're very important lessons for me, John, because I think I am someone that I'm always living in the future. I'm always thinking about tomorrow. What am I going to do? What do I want to do? Who do I want to meet and see? What do I want to read? Where do I want to go? I'm thinking about that all the time, which I think doing that partly is a really good thing. But I do spend so much time sometimes falling into that trap that the now and here can only be seen for me as the platform for the tomorrow rather than having a beauty in itself, just being here now. And it's a lesson that I have to tell myself quite a bit and I realise that's my lesson. And so when I have these encounters, and it's usually nature-driven, there are moments where there is a beautiful tree or an amazing Mm. sunset. We were on the harbour the other night seeing the vivid lights and it was spectacular, the full moon, the way the clouds captured the lights from... and, and, And it was... Yes, man created those lights that we were mm. seeing at Vivid, but nature and the, the beauty and the natural beauty of the harbour just made it even more spectacular. And it's moments like that that I know that they are messages for me to be present, to be still, to be aware of the now. Mm. And the important thing is how you can experience all of that but still want to do the things that you want to do, you know, and not just go, I just, I'm just going to sit here because then... 
when you sit in those moments, so when I came back from that whale encounter, mm. what it did to me is just made me obsessed with whales. And I've always <laughs> loved whales, but I've come back into my work, my radio and television work, now thinking of how to incorporate that in, into everything I do. Mm. So tonight we're on the show we'll be talking about a group of people that go out and help when whales become entangled in these drum lines. We've had mm. a few of those recently with this whale migration up the coast. And it's such a an amazing job to do. You've got this massive, you know, seven, eight-tonne creature mm. wrapped up, very distressed. The other whales around it are distressed. And how do you go in there and protect it, keep it safe, cut the lines? It's just extraordinary. And then also this, that sad story about we put those lines in their place, you know, in, in their world and, and we've created this harm, you know, for them. And they'd be so free and having such a good time and not expecting these nets and, and lines. And, and that encounter just gave me a sense of being in a creature's world, you know, that, that I am actually part of this world and reminding me constantly in all the work I do, all the engagements, encounters that I have all the time, that we can sometimes bring stuff with us, you know, that we're not aware that we're even carrying into a space, into a mm. place. And it can be pure and perfect. And then by us coming into that space, we, we can contaminate it in, in, in ways. And, and I think that that's this struggle I think I, I have because humans are nature, we're part of nature, but then there are the things that are part of our world that are not good and not right that we have to get rid of all the time and, and, and remove. And I think when you said, tell me about yourself, what... I think the essence of what I'm trying to do is find ways to communicate stories to help us connect better with each other. You know, in the end, I think that that's what I think we're always in danger of losing, you know, the connection and deep meaning with things. But also my skill set, I sort of realised, you know, I'm not going to be all the things I wanted to be and the thing I can do is... Um, you know, sit in front of a microphone or sit in front of a camera and mm. talk and share some of these stories, yeah. you know, and uh, share the stories of the people that I meet as well and how that can just expand connection and communication. That's that's fascinating because, you know, you, you would say, and I think one of the reasons we get along so well is our heads always in the future, <laughs> thinking about the next thing, what is the next way we can contribute to the next. And so, we often surround ourselves with people who are very good at being present in the moment uh, as a way to ground and connect ourselves. But, you know, for the purposes of us being able to help others pitch their stories forward for the good. Now, your story goes back a few decades, uh, not in Australia. What are some of your earliest and most pressured, treasured childhood memories? Mm, I had such an adventurous childhood in a way that, as most of us do, you look back and you realise, oh, that's what my childhood was. Because mm. while you're living it, you just think, oh, you know, I'm just being a kid and everyone else is doing this like me. But it wasn't like that at all. It was quite unique in a lot of ways. So uh, I was When born did you realise that? You know, because everywhere, we all grow up assuming our experience is normative. Mm. It was quite late, probably 
not till five or six years into working at the ABC when I started. I think I always thought, oh, you know, I'll meet people like that when I get to that age. Mm. Oh, when I get to high school. Oh, okay, when I get to uni. <laughs> All right, when I start working. And then I realised, well, I'm never going to meet people like that specific experience because maybe no one else really lived like that. So being born in South Africa in the ni- late 1960s during the height of apartheid, so race segregation laws controlled everything that my parents mm. did where they lived, where they went to schools, benches they could sit on, and that wasn't going to be a life that they wanted for their children. So as soon as they got their qualifications, which they had to leave South Africa to do because there weren't any universities for non-white people, so their parents were fortunate enough to be able to afford to send them to India, which is where they got their training. And then when they came back to South Africa, they realised, oh, there were no positions for Indian dentists. There were no positions for Indian sports teachers. So that was a big decision that they had to make to leave everything they knew, all their family, as so many immigrants have done for generations, mm-hmm. and try to find a place that would accept them, they could build a life and, and bring up their, their family. And that set us off, again, in an unusual way probably. A lot of mim- immigrant families would maybe just make one move to one country. We kept moving. So from South Africa, we went to Zambia and then we went to England. Then we came to Australia. And then when we were in our um, early teens, we went back to Africa and went to Zimbabwe, which had just got independence and lived there for a few years, which was at the end of the Civil War. It was a very traumatic time. We were kids who'd come from essentially a middle-class white Anglo life in Australia. Mm. And even though we came from a... African, Asian, cultural and and genetic background, we were essentially white Aussie kids in the way that we'd lived. So being thrown into a civil war in Africa, whoa, was just nothing that we had any sort of reference points for. So lots of learning experiences there. Then we came back to Australia and uh, finished our education, uni and and um, getting into the workforce. So a very adventurous, I mean, I'd have to say it that way, every couple of years we were thrown into not only another school or home or city but another country, another culture. Mm. And the thing, John, that I think now that I look back on it, what was so fortunate about why that was a good thing to experience it will look. It obviously was was quite destabilizing. You don't really want to do that to a family, get them to move so many times. But the good thing was is that it kept changing the parameters of the way you see yourself. Yeah. So most people grow up thinking, whatever it is, I'm a woman, I'm I'm black, I'm I'm gay, I'm straight. Mm-hmm. We kept moving so much that the parameters around you kept on changing. So you could live in a society where everyone around you was white and then three years later everyone's black and then you're in a culture where everyone's speaking English and then in the culture that Shona is the main language and then women are the matriarch, everyone listens to what women say and then you move another culture which is patriarchal and it changes, another culture that intelligence and academic achievements really applauded and then another school where, no, you have to be good at sport to get ahead. And so it kept changing all the time. And what that meant as a kid Mm. is no one way, external way, you realised was ever going to be the way that you could assess who you were because it kept on changing. And so that meant from a very early age, me more so maybe than my sisters, I had to find my own internal way of assessing who I was Mm. or being comfortable or confident about who I was. Mm. And what happened is it was nothing to do with me externally. 
It was nothing really to, even to do with me culturally mm. and that I had to find a way wow. to connect with people that was nothing to do with their class, their background, their race, their religion. Mm. That's all superficial anyway. Mm. And so that was a good thing, I, I think, learning as a, a child because I know that that then can set you up for struggles later in life where mm. you can be perceived one way by a group that you've mainly only been with most of your life. It's very hard for you then to break out of not seeing yourself the way the group around you did. It was fascinating. That's so profound. Last weekend I flew down for a high school reunion and I was struck by the reality that we grew up in a very stratified world there and it was quite a shock after a few decades. Someone started talking to me and I had this double take even after 30 years. In my mind was saying, you're not from my station in that he was from a higher station and I went 30 years back and went, you would never be caught dead talking to me. Why are you talking to me now? And then I looked and went, oh, we're both old now. (laughs) We don't care. And that kind of defined you and your prospects and your outlooks for life and who you could interact with. And and, and you've somehow through that kind of really wild and eclectic um, experience been able to bypass all of that and just well, be able most to of it, obviously, every, everyone, you know, there are sort of um, unconscious bits there that, that obviously I have mm. to pull myself up uh, for every now and then. But I think, yeah, um, I, I realise that every society mm. decides what is going to be uh, the thing that makes yeah. you accepted or not, mm. but they're not the same. No. They're not no. the same. Now, through all that moving and, and transition, your little anchor gang would have been you and your two sisters, a yeah. little gang of three, three sisters of which you are the oldest. Yeah. Oh, I have three sisters. <laughs> <laughs> what do you reckon is the best part about being the oldest sister, the yucca, or what is, and what's the worst? I think when I was younger, it was more of a burden. And as I got older, I realised, oh, no, I have the best of, of it. How so? When you're younger, especially, you know, growing up in a in an Indian culture, three children, three sisters, the oldest, whether it's the boy or the girl, there is a sense of responsibility. It's a mm. very big role uh, in a lot of ethnic families, the oldest. And you have to take on a responsibility for everyone, which yep. you do. And it's only when you get older, you think, hang on, I think Everyone needs to be responsible for themselves. But you don't... (laughs) But you're telling your Indian parents. No. And so you never challenge it. And I have to admit there are some of those things that culturally are quite deep in me that it's Mm. taken me a while to understand that essentially we are all responsible for ourselves. Mm. And, yes, you can look out for someone and care for someone and, of course, as a parent or an older sibling, you're going to be a little bit more protective, that I understand. Mm. But this sense that... um, that if something goes wrong with another sibling, it's your fault or yes. your responsibility. Now that totally. is... As the younger sibling, I endorse and affirm that Of view. course. Of course that is highly unfair. <laughs> and so especially my younger sister, which we'll t- who we'll talk about a bit later, she was in- incredibly naughty. Mm. And so all that naughtiness... I got blamed for. So she fell off the swing, my fault for not monitoring her. Mm. If she didn't hand up in an assignment on time, it was my fault for not overseeing her homework and looking after it. So I had that for most of my life as well. So 
uh, as my husband says, it has made me rather bossy. So even though I'm already an older sister, it's made me even more, a little yeah. bit more bossy and mm. sort of looking after everything and making sure everyone's doing all the right things a little probably too much that I probably wouldn't have been like, although he thinks I, I still would have been like that. So that was a bit of the disadvantage. But the advantage is, and this is probably why it is, the, or I think the advantage to be the oldest, is that you get to do everything first. Yep. You get to try everything, explore everything, break down your parents a little bit to let mm. you do things. And then the other siblings I do feel for because especially if you do some of those things well, then every, you're always they're always compared to you oh, all okay. the time. Yeah. Why can't you be like your sister? Why mm. don't you study like she does? Why don't you be good and mm. all that sort of stuff? Which is so unfair because they're not allowed to develop fully who they could have been, whereas I don't feel I was restricted because there was no one else above me to to say, why can't you be like that person, you know? That groundbreaking also comes with the highest level of probably discipline as well, doesn't it? So it, it gives it a high level of risk too, doesn't it? Yeah. D- discipline, again, that wouldn't have been something I would have understood about myself, but I do lead of quite a disciplined life because of that. <laughs> you know, that I don't have that same sense that, again, my younger si- siblings have. So being one of four, there's me and uh, my older sister and then we migrated to Australia and then there's two younger sisters and my older sister and I often joke that if we could have anyone's parents, we'd have the younger two's parents because everything we had to fight for, they were just able to walk into. Can we go out? Can we hang out at a friend's house? Can we have dinner there? Can we stay over the night? Can I go to a party? You know, we broke them down. Mm. We we broke their spirit. Yeah, because <laughs> parents are exhausted by the third and the fourth right. one. They were, they were ready to go. So um, what age were you when you found your way into Sydney? Oh, I think I was about 26. What are your first memories of King's Cross? Oh, wow. You're a local resident now. I am. And it's interesting. It wouldn't have been the place I automatically would have settled in, but my husband, who grew up on the North Shore and had lived there for a number of decades, when we met, he said, we have to live in Potts Point, Kings Cross area. And I Mm. said, really? Because I'd come from outside Sydney and so I'd heard the stories about how edgy it was and Mm. the crime. And he said, no, it's going to be terrific. And he used to remember going there as a child. So he said, we have to live here. And when we moved in was in the late 1990s and it was still quite wild. Mm. So there was still all the crime bosses. Yeah, explain it to me in as much detail as you can. What was it like, 1990s? There were extreme no-go areas. When I think about it now, there were streets you just knew you did not walk down. You didn't walk down Springfield, you know, Avenue at all because that's where people were shooting up heroin and people would mug you to, you know, to try to get some money to pay for their next hit or whatever. I bought so, a caramel latte from Springfield Avenue. I know. <laughs> and now it's just the most, you know, like Mossman-style everyone cafeing. Mm. Uh, unbelievable 30 years ago that any of those activities could happen in that street. And mm. and some of the saddest, saddest stories you would see there, you know, mm. because there were there were quite a few brothels and, yeah. and street walkers in that area and, and uh, standover men and it really was like all those television shows that you see, mm. that was that particular street. I didn't walk down that street I think for about 12 years 
um, from when we moved in. And a number of times we would see people having overdoses. We would call the cops and yeah. the ambulance to come and help them. That mm. was actually when you went out for a walk on the streets of King's mm. Cross, you were prepared to maybe see an overdose and that was how you knew you had to respond to help someone out. So that was that happened a bit. You were helping someone up or asking them were they okay, what was wrong, you know, someone had just been mugged or someone had been in a fight. So... There was a lot of first aid that you were delivering when you first arrived. Were you carrying one of those big 1990 mobile phones around? Oh, yeah. The exciting thing was there were many more bohemians around. So, there, you know, it was a a cheaper place to live, not as expensive as it is now. So there were artists and actors and singers and people who who had just seen everything and done everything and amazing um, characters, musicians, and everyone mixed with everyone else. Mm. Um, Auntie Rosie, who we've, we lost recently, one of our most famous uh, local residents, and I used to love the idea that you'd walk down the street and she would be one step ahead of Paul Keating, the former Prime Minister, who also has an office in our area, walking just behind her. Hi, Rosie, he'd say, and they'd, mm. you know, walk up the street and they'd say hi to you and everyone would keep walking. And such a extremes really in experience, mm. but all coming together in the King's Cross Potts Point area in this just accepting way. I, I can't explain it. It's still got that sense now, but then it was a celebratory thing, you know, that people were different and they had different ways they wanted to live and everyone just allowed people to be who they were. You know, it was very, very free. It was almost like it felt like how maybe a commune would feel, you know, where anything sort of went and anything goes and people would come to the area to experience that, you know. Yeah. Especially young kids. I used to love how it was a place where you would come to see your first something, mm. your first strip show, your first drag queen, uh, your first, sadly, your first homeless person. Mm. You you saw the breadth of society all in, you know, a couple of, of kilometres and most importantly how everyone was embraced mm. and everyone looked out for everyone. There was this sense that we were a village. In some ways you could say with your upbringing about being exposed to so many different cultures and exposed to so many different ways of being, you could say you were almost drawn to that kind of place. Yeah. What, what do you think it is about that area that makes it so unique? The wayside. When did you first? Well, I, I knew about the wayside being there before we even moved, so that... Uh, I knew it was there. I knew its history and what it did. What I wasn't expecting was that it would be, I don't know, how do you describe it? Porous, I guess is the word. Porous. (laughs) Yeah. Explain. Yeah. It's like it has this osmosis of things coming in and things going out. It's like a breathing organism. I was expecting it to be a building and have this structure, Mm. but it has organs, it has lungs, it obviously Mm. has a heart. But when you're there and when you feel it, you feel like you're in a organism breathing Mm. and the blood is pumping through it and you feel its breath and you you become part of its breath and the inhale and the exhale at the same time. That was what I was not expecting. You know, talking about the whale earlier, it is like mm. it is like you go into a creature, you know, that's very alive. Yeah, absolutely right. Often during the height of the, the lockdown, you know, we were operating on limited hours and a lot of outreach and 
I would often find myself working back in the office late till 1 or 2 or 3 a.m. and I was the only person in the building so everyone was gone and all the lights were off except my office and I could hear people just moving through the building. (laughs) There was never once did I feel afraid or threatened. It was just you could feel the life that was still present in the building and you know, now even to this day you walk in and you're right, you can see there, there's a there's a rhythm and a beat and we all often walk through and we comment on the vibe. What's the vibe today or mm. what can you feel today? And and some days that's a very light, joyous vibe and other, other days, days it's, it's, it's a heavy, edgy mm. kind of vibe and sometimes that can flip in a minute and sometimes it can stay there for weeks on, mm. weeks on end. So it's it's quite a, a precious and unique space in there. You know, you, you mentioned about yeah, being in the cross in the 90s with the heroin. The heroin crisis was kind of running there. So what are some you, – you said you saw a few people overdosing and – were you uh, around for the the days of the the injecting centre? Because this was before. Yeah. Uh, New South Wales is now once again talking about a, um, a a drug summit. Do you remember those days? I do. Yeah. I remember Bob Carr quite extraordinarily. You know, globally it was a, a first. I think Israel and another South American country had set up injecting centres, and Bob Carr, I think his brother had died from an overdose and that's why it was a very, very personal story for him. And, you know, there are a lot of things about Bob Carr that sometimes when it comes to some of his social and policy settings and, and positions on immigration and things that I don't always agree with where where he's at. And I was fascinated that he was taking such a strong vocal position on the importance of an injecting room. Mm. I knew the importance of that as a resident of the area and having seen what I've, I was seeing and that w- the way we were attacking the drug problem wasn't working. But the fact that he was so proactive and so passionate, you know, there were a couple of other key people obviously involved in it too, but having a, a political leader at that time to drive it, you realise the importance of when we have a political leader that really understands a social issue particularly, Mm. as we're seeing with Anthony Albanese and The Mm. Voice, you need that passion at that political level to drive these changes through. So it transformed the cross overnight, that injecting Mm. room. It was incredible. And again, an acknowledgement by our community that a drug problem is a health problem. Mm. It's not a crime problem. And that we'd always been treating it as a crime. And as soon as it was treated as a health problem and that you can give people the health advice, the medical support they needed, of course we weren't going to have those terrible overdoses we were seeing before. I believe in, in New South Wales at the time the, the local newspaper would have the road toll on the front page and the heroin toll uh, on the other side of it and we suddenly for the first time in quite a long time saw a significant reduction in the toll from overdose deaths which was always centred around the heart of the cross. You know, often they say in uh, at, with Wayside, we say often people come to us for the first time on some of the darkest days of their lives. And, you know, we all collectively experienced uh, lockdown over the last few years. And at the same time as doors were shutting down across Sydney and across the world, mm. you landed yourself in the seat on a radio show where you were speaking to the nation. And as the, the sun set, you would uh, open, fire up your microphone and you were 
having some very deep and meaningful fireside chats with people at some of the darkest moments of their life. And, mm. you know, I think, you know, we were seeing a peak in the number of calls to Lifeline through that time, 3,200 calls in a day, which was yeah. had been unheard of. But there was one phone call that you received too during that time. Yeah, extraordinary. We couldn't have imagined what happened to us during that pandemic on so many levels. Mm. So we were coping with this global pandemic the national borders closed and then in the midst of all of that I get this very personal phone call from my brother-in-law that my younger sister had taken her life in lockdown in Melbourne. So suddenly on these three levels, the pandemic and the tentacles of of that terrible time uh, had, yeah, really wrapped itself around me. It was difficult, obviously, um, Mm. to lose a cherished sister in that way but because of the lockdown, not being able to go and cross the borders and, and spend time with other members of the family, so we couldn't grieve and give each other support. And then when we went for her funeral, because her family lived in Melbourne, mm. we couldn't spend time together. Restrictions were only 20 in the room and then we couldn't go into each other's houses. You could only have 10 people uh, in a house. And so that was really, really difficult. And then we had to leave very quickly afterwards as well. The whole grieving process was was just truncated in such a terrible way. And I'd never gone through such a big loss in my life before and then have to do it in an environment that's really about keeping people separate from each other. It was um, such a blow, so difficult, obviously, for my parents. Mm. I was only away for a week, went back to work Mm. very quickly. And I'm not sure now was that the right thing to do or not the right thing. And I think it was the right, and I was lucky. I had this avenue. I had a microphone. I had an audience. And now I had a very real experience of what many of them were going through in their losses and and darkness during the pandemic as well. And so having an ability to do something positive with my grief, and even though I wasn't sharing it at the time, at the early stages after my sister died, I was hearing stories from people who I actually thought were going through a lot worse losses and griefs than I was. I think having that daily connection with them, Mm. as you would understand at the wayside as well, it can put into perspective what you're going through as well, which you Mm. do need in realising that loss is just human and everyone will lose people that they love Mm. at some stage in their life. And so that helped greatly as well, having the outlet of a television, a radio show mm. to share that. And the other wonderful thing that I discovered, because we were doing, um, you know, five-kilometre lockdowns, so you only had a small s- space to explore right. and go for walks. I was very lucky we live on the back door of the Royal Botanic Gardens. So during that time I would do my ISO walk in the morning through the gardens and that was a wonderful way for me to heal and and to manage my grief. And I discovered this beautiful tree, a Morton Bay fig tree in the gardens, that became not only... A bit of a national icon now, that yeah, Morton Bay tree. It, it really is. Not only became this beautiful friend for me, mm. a companion I could just be with, didn't have to explain in words how I was feeling. And I know that that can be quite difficult sometimes with grief, you know, how to put in words to someone else who isn't going through it. And with a tree... You don't have to explain. You don't have to have words. You don't have to think, oh, are you going to judge me? Am I saying the wrong thing? Or the tree's just the tree. And so this ability to just sit and be with a presence, you could feel it was alive, but 
in a way, I guess we why we connect with pets as well. It's the same thing that they they're just loving you and they're not they're not judging in any way. And that tree became not only important as a uh, as a friend, but then opened up the natural world in a much more intimate way than I'd felt before. Mm. So all the other natural parts of its world, so ants and birds and feathers and clouds, it started to show me that these parts of nature could also help me heal. And by watching them and their life cycle during those months, I understood a bit more deeply the cycle of life and death and mm. and the naturalness of that as well. But the other beautiful thing is I started to feel my sister in very deep ways that sounds odd, but in okay. deeper ways than even when we were physically both together. And I could I could feel what, her. When was the last time you think you actually physically saw her or connected before? Because we were in lockdown, mm. so it was the year before that that I physically saw her. And yet through this process you felt even closer. Even closer, yeah. Bre- breezes. I could I could feel her and I could sometimes smell her scent. And she had a perfume that she loved, Rive Gauche. And sometimes I'd feel her presence, like, literally walking with me as I was doing my walk. It was really interesting how it made me think that, yes, we are all made of energy. And when we move from this body, the question we always ask ourselves is what happens to us? Where do we go? And for me, that energy just gets absorbed into the energy that's all around us all the time. And, mm. I, and, I, and I really felt that afterwards. So it's really odd. Yeah. So even though the physical loss was, was very real at the beginning, I don't feel loss mm. at the moment. Um, I mean, it's three years um, since she died. But I think the process of writing the book, uh, talking to so many people, so many people now share their loss stories, their grief stories, suicide stories as well. There's so many taboos about talking about those issues yeah. that I think uh, the book has given other people permission to then be open about their losses as well with me. And grief is something I think that needs to be talked about and yeah. I don't think we talk about it enough mm. and understand it. And if you don't let it heal, mm. it can keep on being triggered and, and re-traumatising you in ways that you don't expect and can lead to all sorts of other illnesses and, and injuries and, and problems as well. So I'm a big advocate after going through what I've gone through is it is to be open and talk about your grief, mm. talk about your losses, uh, spend more time in nature. It's a wonderful natural healer yeah. rather than turning to drugs or alcohol, the usual ways people think, okay, that's going to make me feel better. But there is something about... Do you think that broke you out of your experience? Because what you've described is you're a heady person who's always future focused and all of a sudden this very real time tragedy of loss mm. suddenly strikes you and all of a sudden you're you're now telling me to go out into nature and spend time with a tree. Yeah. It was a real reckoning. It brought you into your body? It brought me into my body but also out of my body in, in a way as well because sometimes our bodies right. can be very precious places but sometimes they can be prisons as well and I think that what it made me realise is that Bodies are beautiful. Like our bodies, sometimes we can be at war with them. And why isn't it like most this? Most of the time, most of us are at war with our yeah. bodies, right? And rather than thinking, oh, that body helped me get here. It helped me walk down the street and I wouldn't be here 
if those legs, they yeah. might not be perfect legs, but they got they got me here. Isn't that extraordinary? Um, aren't I lucky, mm. you know? I wouldn't be anywhere. I wouldn't have done any of the things I've been able to do without my mm. body. But then there are other times where your body can be restrictive and you can look at a tree and think, hey, you're, yeah, you have limbs, but they don't look like my limbs, so I'm different from you, you're different from me. And you, you can't move, you just stay in one spot all the time, so I'm better than you. I'm a human and you're just a tree. <laughs> and in those ways, I think being yeah. overly conscious of our human form is, is a real block to connecting with all these other creatures around us because that tree... I got to know it so well and I, I've come away from knowing my tree thinking superior being in all <laughs> ways. It gets everything it needs by being in the same spot. I run around to the supermarket and I'm chasing toilet paper and trying mm. to find mints and it's been there in the one mm. space getting all the food it needs and nutrients from the soil. Who's smart, me or the tree? The wisdom of a tree. Now, if you've been listening, go back a 15 minutes. We've had 15 of the most amazing minutes of depth and wisdom and sharing from you. This has just been quite moving and, and powerful. Oh, thanks. You know, we've, we've gone from, um, I don't want to cheapen it by kind of back, back announcing, but, you know, talking about how, you know, the, the sudden loss right at the start of lockdown of, of your sister when she died by suicide and, and then you had to go into a space where you were talking to others, where you were connecting with others. One of the things about loss and grief and pain is that we often internalise it and we drive it down and down mm. and down. And and just because of your job, you're actually physically forced in a way to connect with people. Yeah. And interesting, you made the observation then that you're saying you were talking to people who had experienced far worse. I could imagine nothing uh, worse than as a, the oldest sibling losing your cherished youngest, naughtiest a little mm. star girl in that space and then moving through to the somatic experience of experiencing a tree and a puppy and you compared them as the same, whereas I would often think that would be two different things. I think a tree often teaches awe and reverence, whereas a puppy teaches delight, <laughs> but it's temporal as well and learning how to be in that space and how to move into your body, which has helped then make you feel even more connected with with mm. your sister. Wow. There's a lot to, I've got to go back and listen to this and I think absorb uh, and drink deeply. I said to my publisher, uh, the, the book, The Space Between the Stars, was uh, nominated for Nonfiction Book of the Year. We had the, the book awards the other night. Very extraordinary arc, if you can imagine, mm. from the moment of this extreme loss to deciding within a couple of weeks to start writing a book about mm. grief and, and, and how nature can heal, not thinking I could complete the project. Then having to talk, not sure I could even talk publicly. How do, how do I find mm. the words to talk about this? And then spending all these um, months going into communities and hearing everyone's story, mm. including communities, for instance, it may not be... I mean, you, you spoke to Robin Williams' daughter at one point. Yeah, you? son. Yeah. Son. It may not be lost to do with suicide. It could be I was down in Bega and speaking to townsfolk there who lost uh, friends in the That's fires right. and bushfires and there's a, still a lot of trauma and loss. So, and they were even too afraid to go to the pub yeah. after a while. So yep. you held the event in the pub. Yeah, exactly. And sitting at the book awards with my publisher and I said to Jane, thank you so much for giving me this gift. And she just went, 
how can you how can you think of it that way? I just keep thinking I'm I'm re-traumatizing you all the time, you know. And I said, no, it hasn't been like that at all. Because I said, if there was one person that I thought could be helped by my experience mm. and me sharing my experience, it would have all been worth going through this. And I honestly didn't know if I was ever going to find that one person. And now there are hundreds and there are thousands of people that have said, this was something that I was struggling with, my mental health. And then I read mm. the effect it has on family members and thought, maybe I should try a little harder. Maybe I should try something different. Mm. That's not going to be the solution. I don't want to harm mm. my family that way. Or someone who said, my mother um, took her life 15 years ago. I told everyone it was cancer yeah. because I didn't want to cope with, mm. I didn't know how to talk, tell that story. I, after reading your book, I started telling everyone this is how she really died. And There's something about the shame that's still associated. Oh, absolutely. It prevents us from talking about it. And you know, you've had the opposite experience where you have begun to talk about it more and encourage others to talk about it more. And it's been a really powerful kind of force that's been unleashed into, into this universe, hasn't it? I think everything loses its power once you shine sunlight onto it, really, doesn't it? It's the greatest you disinfectant, know, isn't it? It really is. And I think if you look at so many of these social challenges particularly that we've had, whether it's domestic violence or child abuse, when we are finally prepared as communities to open up and say, look, this is what's been going on, mm. that's the only way we can start tackling it mm. and, and actually supporting people. You've recently spent some time with former Prime Minister Julia Gillard, mm. who in many ways, was, well, you know, objectively speaking, passed more legislation than, you know, she the did. previous five governments before yeah. her and yet was constantly harangued and hounded almost incessantly out of office by men and I would say toxic masculinity. How do we apply the disinfectant to that? Well, Julia's doing a very good job. That That's for sure. Uh, the response, the 10th anniversary of her misogyny speech, spending uh, the last year travelling the country and reminding people how toxic that particular time was. Have we improved since then? Well, this she believes so in some very key ways. She thinks that we would never tolerate a woman Prime Minister being treated that way ever again, and I probably agree. I think there, there were things that happened that... I've gone back and looked at them, the mm. violence in some of the words and the burning effigies, and I yeah. just feel appalled that we mm. could not support and protect someone mm. in that environment. But I, I think and, and agree with her that there are still far many things that still can be mm. improved. I think it's not just what happened here with Julia. Around the world we found uh, the Me Too movement, mm. we, you know, that this toxicity is being exposed more and more. Yeah. Uh, and the, the challenges are clearly there. Uh, education is, is a key, making sure that women everywhere who, who want it get access to more and more education because that is going to be a very important way. They can feel empowered, educated to challenge what's around, that men are included as well, you know, that, that this Agreed. is not a woman problem. This mm. this is a societal problem Absolutely. that involves men as well and that they need to be proactive mm. in calling it out when they see misogyny, in supporting women who are yeah. being victims and in supporting you know, changes in structures and in cultures as well to make it happen. Could we finish with the way you end the book? Should I give it away? Should we let people get the book and read it? 
I think all, so. All I'll say, uh, yeah, because I think it is it is quite a special encounter that mm-hmm. there are things that happen, and this is probably how I've I've changed the most since my sister died. Is that I'm trying to allow myself to be more open, more open to surprise. When, to go back to the the whale story, and what happened in that story that I relate in the final chapter in the book is something that I still cannot explain. Mm. All I know is what happened made me feel so much more comforted and reassured that where my sister is and what what she's doing now is where she's also meant to be. She's happy Mm. to be there, which is such an interesting concept because I'm not sure where that is. I can't really picture it. Mm. But that encounter that I had gave me that sense deep inside of myself Mm. that she's in a good place. Fear not death because whilst death is real and final in a physical way, our stardust goes on into the universe and really still has the ability to communicate with us. So powerful. If we really do believe that love is everywhere and everywhere around us and everywhere in need of us, it's our job just to sit still for long enough to pick up the vibrations, isn't it? Under a tree. Amen. And lovely chat. Indira and I do. Thank you so much for this conversation. John, it's been a pleasure and an absolute delight as always. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Well, give me a hug. <laughs> Our guest today has been Indira and I do, author of The Space Between the Stars, nominated for Non-Fiction Book of the Year, a personal account of grief and the healing power of nature. If you'd like to read it, you can find Indira's book linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Stories by the Wayside. My name's John Owen. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories by the wayside. If you love this show, please give it a five-star review. It helps so much in promoting this, but also share it with a friend. If someone you love who's going through a tough time came to your mind while you were listening, please share it with them. Subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories from the wayside. We'll add a link in the show notes. This podcast has proudly been made in conjunction with MIK Made.